Welcome back. We are in lesson two of our study on the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this evening, for everybody here. Pray that we'll have a good time of study, that we'll stay engaged, um, that we'll ask good questions, and I pray for good answers. Um, as we look through the life of John the Baptist, help us to uh, not just see an example, but uh, from Scripture to see this pivot point, this turning from an old way of doing things to a new way, um, and help us just to see that it's clearly spoken of that way in Scripture. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody got a uh, note sheet there over there? All right. Last week we were talking about the intertestamental period between the silence after the prophet Malachi um, all the way up to the New Testament. Called that the intertestamental period because obviously there's nothing that we accept as scripture written from that window of time. Although, as we discussed last week, there is plenty written um, apocalyptic, apocryphal books and writings that had a lot to say about the Jewish belief in the kingdom of God. We also talked a little bit about the Old Testament before that and just how it shaped the Jewish understanding that God was the king and that the Jewish nation occupied a very special place in the, in the, in the history and uh, religious strata of the world so that we can see that the Jewish people believed that uh, they were different because God told them they were different, but they believed that that difference entitled them to rule over the other nations and that their own existence was an affront to their religious beliefs. In the intertestamental period, I also talked about that there were two ways the Jewish people believed that the Messiah would manifest himself. One group believed he would be a military leader or warrior who would politically come in, take control, and destroy the Romans. And another group believed that he was going to be a heavenly angelic... That is a very relaxing ringtone. I almost wanted to start like teaching to a cadence, you know. But another, another uh, group believed that he'd be an angelic end times figure who would uh, usher in a great judgment and change the entire nature of the physical, spiritual universe. And so there were two different uh, major ways. Uh, note, note sheets are right over there on that desk. So either a military leader with, uh, with, uh, with vicious armies ready to sack the Romans or an angelic super being ready to basically melt the cosmos and establish a new way of living. Now we get to the time of John the Baptist. After we've discussed the background, you kind of see the scene that John the Baptist would be walking into. Um, on your paper, we've got... Uh, Four, four groups listed, and we talked a little bit about them last week, but I want to go over them just because John the Baptist is going to be talking to them. Um, and these are the religious uh, political parties or political groups in Israel at the time of Jesus and John the Baptist. I'm going to describe them briefly again, even though we did a little bit last week, just because of how we're interacting with John the Baptist and his message. The first are the Sadducees. 
The Sadducees were mainly focused in Jerusalem. That was their power base. There were less of them, but they had more political power. They had the priesthood. Is that the last one? It is. Yeah, that's right. Front row Baptist now. So there were less of them, but they were more politically powerful. They had the priesthood. The party of the Sadducees had the priesthood. And they were very cozy with the Roman uh, overlords, the Greek cultural elite at the time, because the main uh, culture and language at this time in the Roman Empire was still Greek. Even though it was the Roman Empire, the Romans borrowed heavily from the Greek um, worldview. Jerusalem, the priesthood, and the Sanhedrin were dominated by the Sadducees. Let me uh, tell you a few more things about them. The uh, Pentateuch, which is the first five books of Moses. That was all they received as proper scripture. Just those five books. Books of Moses. Um, They did not believe that the rest of the Bible, even though it was helpful, was inspired. So they did not believe in angels. They did not believe in demons. And they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Remember, Jesus gets into an argument with them about the resurrection of the dead. Now, the reason for this is not because they're necessarily what we'd call theological liberals. It's not like they're just deciding, hey, I don't want to believe stuff that I don't like. I'm gonna... they, they were, it was almost like they were very strict about what they believed. But socially, they were very, we would say, liberal. They just, whatever prevailing notion the Greeks and Romans passed off of them, they accepted it. They were very cozy with them. So it's, it's a very odd thing. They're very strict on which books they view in the Bible, almost super conservative. But then, hey, you know, we're fine with Caesar. We're fine with being Roman. It should all be good. God doesn't care that they rule us. So they were not um, involved in a lot of this messianic upheaval stuff. They weren't really strongly looking for a Messiah to turn the world upside down. They might have looked and said, hey, Moses said a prophet's coming one day and listen to him, fine. But they weren't all about this messianic, apocalyptic, terrorist stuff. So that was the Sadducees. Come on in, come on in. Right over there. <laughs> hey, Aaron, do you know how to work that printer? Uh, in the, straight down the hallway across the double doors. Um, actually, if I'll hit print on my computer real quick as you walk down there, and I'll just print out 10 more instead of you having to work the code. I'll be right back. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Uh, you can relate to this. My apologies. We've never broke 30 before, so I was using historical precedent to be like, okay, we'll, we'll get in the 20s. Thank y'all. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we've got the Sadducees. Next, and the ones that we're the most familiar with, merely because this is mainly who Jesus argues with, but also because this is who Paul was, were the Pharisees. Did they, did the Sadducees, did they believe in resurrection? Or no, sir. They did not believe that there was a resurrection from the dead because it was in the first five books of Moses that they put all of their faith and trust, and that was something taught later in the Psalms and in the Prophets. They did not believe that that carried the weight of the first five books. Another reason was they were very culturally tied to the Greeks, and the Greeks did not believe in the resurrection of the dead because they thought that was absurd. You're supposed to leave your body and go to the world of the, of the platonic forms where your soul is perfected. The, the body, even though they had wonderful you know, sculptures of the human body, the body is a vulgar, terrible thing, and it's weak. Thank you. Sadducees were uh, from the Levite tribe, I guess? No, they, uh, the Sadducees were any tribe, even though that they many Sadducees were in the priesthood, it was open to any tribe. Okay. The reason they got their name Sadducees, we believe, was from the high priest during the Davidic reign of Zadok. It was uh, like a change of that word. So it's from Zadok, which means righteous. So any at that point in time in Jesus' era, anybody, any tribe could be in the priesthood, not just the... No, uh, you could be in the priesthood only if you were a Levite. But all the Sadducees weren't priests. Just most of the priests were Sadducees. There were some Pharisees who were priests, too. Thank you, sir. And if anyone else needs a note sheet, here it is. I thought it was because they didn't believe in the resurrection for their name. Because it was sad, you see. Yeah, that's... Uh, we were waiting. Was that Jerry Clower? Woo! <laughs> 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 You hadn't, you hadn't been ragged that hard since the North Dakota trip, have you? <laughs> or since about two weeks ago. Okay, or last time you saw Mike and Gary. Right, right. All right, so the, the Pharisees were big in the countryside, the rural, rural areas, and they were, they were more numerous. There were about 6,000 of them. And most, so the Sadducees were rich. The Pharisees, and this is what's interesting because the Pharisees get hit a lot for their hypocrisy, but the Pharisees were middle class. Um, they weren't extremely wealthy, but the Bible does say they loved money, doesn't it? So they were middle class. Um, they were big in the synagogue out in the countryside, not so much in the temple. But the Pharisees uh, viewed themselves as a reform movement, fixing what was wrong with the Jewish religious system. You might remember a little bit from this last week. They believed that they were building a hedge or a wall. I'll put a hedge here because I like the idea of a hedge. They were putting a hedge around the law because you might be too dumb to follow it. They were smart enough with the Bibles to, to give you some guidance. So here's an example. The law says don't work on the Sabbath, right? 
Well, what happens if you have an animal tied up and you have to, like, let him off of his uh, post and lead him to water to drink? If you tied a knot, you would be working. But if you just pulled a rope that untied the knot, you wouldn't be working. You see, it's clever. You know, it's like, hey, you're, you better watch out. You might sin and then God would punish you. We're going to teach you that there is a better way to follow the law, our way, where we're going to add regulations, add oral traditions. And so, for example, you can pull and untie a certain type of knot, but if you have to use two hands and, you know, and it's cinched, oh, then, then you're sinning. What do you do after you water it? Uh, I haven't read all of the commentaries. <laughs> I guess if you just have a lasso left and throw it up, just it falls over a post, you know, you're... You're, uh, you're safe, but if you have to stop and, like, you know, tie it and hold your pinky over it, anything the Boy Scouts taught you is a sin on Sunday. <laughs> All right? So there were, there were laws upon laws to avoid this type of stuff. Another one was they're really big about who you eat with, and it's not because that might defile you, because as far as I know, the Old Testament didn't have that type of stuff in it. But it did have cleanliness laws, and they're like, what if you eat with a person who's defiled? You don't know it, and then you get defiled, and then you go to the temple, and God's just unhappy with you because you're defiled. So there are a lot of rules to keep you from breaking other rules. And, and the Pharisees were masters at finding ways to keep you doing things to avoid breaking the law accidentally. But, you know, I think they broke the law whenever it's in the Scriptures. Or they would pull the donkey out of a well or something like that. Right. And Jesus has a lot to say about them later. So they, they had the hedge, and they had hypocrisy, and they had a, a strong following in the countryside. Here's another interesting thing about them. They viewed, you know, the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament as divine, not the apocalyptic works we talked about, but they were into the whole Old Testament. But also... Oral teachings from the elders. And so the stuff that I just told you where, you know, Gus the Pharisee a hundred year ago, years ago said, you know what, don't work on the Sabbath, but you can pull a rope that unties a knot. They would say, well, Gus is scripture too. So they had the Bible plus what other people said about the Bible that were special teachers that gave insight. And so... We might say that almost sounds like someone who's theologically liberal saying, yeah, you know, I would like to teach the world to sing as a great song. It should be in the Bible. Because it feels good. And so they added to Scripture to try to make it more rigorous. Um, but culturally, they were anti-Roman. They wanted the Messiah. They wanted a pure priesthood. And they wanted Israel to be ruled by God alone or a Davidic king. So they were, at times, terroristic against Roman rule. They did not see Caesar as legitimate. That's why when they say, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not Jesus? And he's like, show me the coin. And they're like, you know, don't bring up the coins. Can't even make our own coins without this guy. So you get the point. They're, they're mad about this type of stuff. The Sadducees aren't like, nice one, Jesus. And he's like, resurrection? 
you know, so both of them didn't like Jesus, but he picked at them in different ways. Um, the Pharisees obviously had much more in common with him, but Jesus hit them at the root of their, their hypocrisy. Um, then we have the Essenes who lived out in the desert, in the wilderness, like we talked about at the Qumran community. And they, they were very similar to the Pharisees, but they believed that the entire temple system had been corrupted and that you could no longer serve God, God that way. You had to serve him by removing yourself from society and applying yourself to the spiritual reading of the law. Uh, they would study those apocalyptic visions we talked about like uh, last week, the song, no, sorry, the Psalms of Solomon and the book of Enoch. Um, they were looking for a Messiah, a heavenly figure who would usher in a new era. They believed that God was no longer working in history, in this history, that it would have to be a special invasion of earth by heaven for God to destroy the Romans. Most of the Essenes were not looking for a military Messiah, but a heavenly angelic Messiah. The Pharisees were all about the military Messiah. Are the Essenes referenced in the Bible? Um... We'll get to that in just a minute because they're not talked about a lot, but you know that they're in mind when we get to John the Baptist. You said what, what community at the beginning? You said Qumran. Q-U-M-R-A-N. Uh, uh, the Desert Fortress of Masaba. Masada? Masada. Masada was also built by them, and they, they are the people who left us the Dead Sea Scrolls in those caves. And then the scribes. Now, the scribes were in all of these. They were more like a trade. You learned how to write and copy stuff really good and had good handwriting, but also had all of the, the letter-counting tricks to make sure the copy was exact. You could join the scribes, and the scribes would attach themselves to these teachers and be brought into the community, but they did the copying work and they did the interpreting work. So it wasn't just copying, but also interpreting and putting the right margin notes that your teacher said, you know, like Gus the Pharisee about untying knots. So that type of stuff um, was what scribes did. And there were scribes in, you know, I guess there were probably unaffiliated scribes and then there were Pharisee scribes, Sadducee scribes, and even scribes out copying down the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you've got um, this background when John the Baptist bursts onto the scene and begins to prophesy against the people of Israel. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3 and we start. Yes, sir. What about lawyers? So the lawyers would be with the scribes. Like the scribes, like I said, they don't just write it down, they interpret it. The lawyers are part of that whole movement, but it's which camp they're attached to. So most of the time, Jesus finds the Pharisees, scribes, and lawyers out in the countryside. It's all attached to the Pharisee party. But the lawyers are sitting there arguing about interpretation of the law. They are able to sit there and read it and be like, nope, look at that, look at that. That's within the scribes. All right, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist. In the middle of this cultural picture we have up here, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, so these days, 
John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So he's up along in here, out by the Jordan River, um, where a lot of the Essene communities were. The Essenes went off in the wilderness, lived away from humanity, and did not believe that there was going to be any salvation for Israel unless you exercised yourself from that evil, wicked generation and joined them. So in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And that quote actually is not just from Isaiah. It contains some Malachi and it contains some other parts of the Old Testament. Um, but it's a mishmash. But the main thing is Isaiah, as the biggest you know, formative prophet, did prophesy about this turning back that Israel would have in the last days. In verse 4, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? <laughs> we've heard this before, haven't we? Those of you who are in the prophet study last semester, we've heard this type of biting sarcasm before, haven't we? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow. How to win friends and influence people. <laughs> I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. By the way, some of your translations will say, whose sandals I'm not uh, worthy to untie. Just a little bit of cultural information. If, if you had a Jewish slave in your house, he was not allowed to touch your sandals because that was seen as too low for him. But if you had a non-Jewish slave, they could untie your sandals for you. So John the Baptist considers himself an un-Jewish slave next to the Messiah. It's just a little bit of background for you. Uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So this is John the Baptist and his message. The kingdom of God is near, and repent, and judgment's coming. Now this is exactly what we studied last semester, isn't it? With the prophets. There's been sin, you need to repent. And if not, judgment's coming. But if you do, there's restoration. So John the Baptist is framing himself and he's dressing the part of an Old Testament prophet. The main thing is, though, it says in the Bible here, because, I mean, we just talked about apocalyptic writings last week from the intertestamental period, and we said, you don't have to believe them. It doesn't matter what, what 
the book of Enoch says about the Messiah. Guess what? You don't have to believe it. We don't consider that scripture. It may be helpful to show us what Jewish people believed back then, but you don't have to believe it. But with John the Baptist, this is different. Because when he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the writer here tells us, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. We know from Scripture that the New Testament views John as a bona fide, genuine prophet with the word of the Lord in his mouth. When he speaks, we listen. When he talks about who the Messiah is, we believe it. And when he talks about the nature of the kingdom of God, it's true. So John the Baptist has something a little different than what we talked about last week. He has the word of the Lord and truth working in his teaching. It gets even better. Let's look in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? We're going to get more information about this in a minute, about why John says this, okay? All the Gospels work together beautifully to give us a full picture. This is just the outline right here. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. <clears throat> Just a great scene. Real quick snapshot here in Matthew of John the Baptist's ministry. His view on the kingdom is, uh, is not really spoken of there except the fact that you have to repent. And you can't say, oh, well, I'm Jewish. I have Abraham as my father. Because that's not cutting it right now. If you uh, turn over to the book of Mark, Mark actually starts with John the Baptist because, you know, it's the action gospel and it just starts really quickly. And uh, it tells the same story but in a very condensed way. And it has the exact same uh, baptism story, a little, little bit more condensed again, as Matthew. So you have the same story in the second gospel. Now let's turn over to Luke. Luke chapter 3. Now, the way Luke writes in chapter 3, y'all know Luke is really investigative and, and cross-references his history with years. But, but not just that. He's very theological in how he writes, too. So I want you to kind of keep an eye on this as we get in Luke 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So not only does he talk about the history, but he's very clear. John is a prophet because the word of the Lord came to him, just like the Old Testament prophets, for the word of the Lord comes to them. He also ties back John to his father, Zacharias, a priest, or Zechariah, a priest. And we have that story in Luke. So here's John out in the wilderness. Now, he might not have been an Essene, but he's out in the wilderness like them. And remember why they did that, to remove themselves from the toxic temple system that they believed had been overrun. So here's John the Baptist, the son of a priest, calling Israel to repentance outside of the priestly system. So we don't know what happened in his upbringing or his life. We know his father was old. Did he, did he get raised by him very much or was he orphaned? Did he get disillusioned by seeing his father passed over at the temple system by unrighteous priests who were laughing at the righteousness of it while his righteous father uh, lamented and said, Son, don't become a priest. I don't know what to tell you, but something's changed. We don't know. You can only kind of speculate and imagine, but you see that John the Baptist is out in the wilderness, away from the temple, calling Israel to repentance much like an Essene was. But his message is different than the Essenes because whereas they were calling people to live with them in this isolated community and wait for the heavenly Messiah, we're going to see a little bit different stuff here from John the Baptist. Uh, let's go to uh, verse 10 of chapter 3 because so much of this is just like Matthew and Mark. And after he tells the Pharisees, you know, bear fruit with repentance, verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? So, okay, John, we want to enter this kingdom. You said it's near. What do we do? We don't want the axe to chop our tree. What do we do? Verse 10, what then shall we do? Verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, much like the Matthew and Mark versions. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So you get, you get this idea that John the Baptist is not just preaching an end of the world message. You know, the axe is at the root. 
But he's also preaching a very ethical message where he's like, I have a way that you're supposed to live waiting for this one who's mightier than me. Waiting for this one who I'm like a non-Jewish slave in his house compared to his value. And he gives a very simple message. Don't extort people. Don't steal from them. And share. I mean, pretty simple stuff. But if you look at the backdrop of what he's working with, you can kind of see where there might be Plus, this is, you know, you remember this from last semester. It's very similar to the prophets. But you can see there might be a place here, especially what we talked about, where when people are repenting, he's like, you, you're, you're up there with the Sadducees. You hang out with them. Y'all are rich. Y'all are cozy with the Romans. And everyone else lives below you. Do you want to really serve God and join his kingdom? Share. You've got a lot more than them. Share. You're a tax collector. You've got Roman authority to do whatever. Now, they let you collect this much, but you also know how to work it to your advantage. Stop doing that. You're a soldier. Now, we don't know if he's talking about Roman soldiers here or Herod soldiers, but you're a soldier. You've got a sword, and you can make life miserable for everybody. All you have to do is say, hey, I heard him talking bad about this. Throw him in jail. And he'll pay you a little bit not to tell. You've got a sword so you can get money from people left and right. If you want to follow God being a soldier, he doesn't tell them to quit being a soldier or give away their sword. He tells them, don't extort people. Be content with your wages. So John is not preaching a radical reorganization of society, but a radical reorganization of your part in society. Instead of being self-serving, you are now being serving of your community. It's, it's much like Jesus will talk about later. He's preparing people for him. And so you can see John's kingdom teachings. Now last book, turn over to John. Chapter 1. He's in all four of them. Chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, You're going to hear the same thing over again. I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So there's this question now of baptism that comes up, and we're going to talk about baptism. But before we do that, 
let me stop and let's recollect our thoughts along the blanks in this paper because I know we've been moving. <clears throat> I'm going to let y'all fill in information about the four groups as y'all saw fit, but John the Baptist fills the role of a blank prophet. Yep. He is a dyed-in-the-wool or camel hair prophet. John's call to repentance is matched with an act of baptism. Now, baptism is interesting because it was practiced by two groups in this time. First was non-Jewish proselytes. If you were converted to Judaism and you were some other group, Greek, Scythian, Persian, whoever, if you were non-Jewish, you were baptized once, fully dipped, as an entry point to Judaism. This was widespread practice. If you converted to Judaism, you got baptized. Started when? Uh, sometime after the book of Malachi and sometime before the book of Matthew. <laughs> In that intertestamental period, it became widespread practice. Non-Jewish proselytes were dipped, baptized, to join the people of God. They were also, if they were male, circumcised, every other part of the law they had to adhere to it but it was a special entry point now the Essenes as we saw in the desert you know we talked about them they baptized daily or very often you would wash yourself by fully dipping fully immersing again into a vat or pool of water as part of a spiritual cleansing and you did that over and over and over and over again No repeat on this, and constant repeat on this. Now do you see, John the Baptist's baptism is different from both of those. First, he baptizes Jewish people. says, hey, guess what? You want to repent? You back there. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish. You need to be baptized. So it's almost like he's saying, you want to be in God's family? Being Jewish is not enough. You have to be repentant from your heart. You have to be more Jewish than Jewish. You have to have the intent of the law, not just the name of the law on you. You're not fit for God's people, even as a Jew, unless you are baptized. This is a radical reorientation of what it takes to be pleasing to God in their minds because they think Abraham's our father. This is not enough. But also, it's a one and done. It's not repeatable. Once you enter in that life of repentance, of waiting for the Messiah, of waiting for the kingdom of God, you're not baptized again. So John's baptism differs from both of those usual 
baptism formulas at the time. So John's call to repentance is matched with an act, one act, of baptism. Like I said, the type of baptism is different than any other type used by the Jews for other purposes. Now, John's message focuses on the blank of Jerusalem. He says the axe is at the root. And the Messiah is going to come with his winnowing fork. Y'all know what a winnowing fork is? It's, uh, it's kind of like a rake. And you put it into a, uh, a pile of harvested straw that's been hit with a thresh, you know, until the wheat uh, kernels have been separate or separated. And you kind of throw it up and let the wind carry off the straw and all of the wheat falls, it's heavier. And so it's a way to separate what you need to eat and what you need to burn. <clears throat> and so John's message focuses on the destruction of Jerusalem. And the arriving of Messiah, or Jesus, the Christ. Now think about our two views of the Messiah that we had. Remember? Military leader. He's going to lead the armies of God's people and overthrow the Romans. Or super angelic being. But both of those, what should the focus of the kingdom be? For those two groups, the focus of the kingdom is not changing the way you live here. This is, what, this is the biggest departure of John's meth, of message uh, from other voices out there is the ethical message of his teachings focused on repentance. Focused on repentance. It wasn't about military victory or withdrawal to prepare yourself for this cataclysmic event. But going back to your desk on Monday after you get baptized, I guess on, you know, well, the Sabbath was Saturday then. But over the weekend, you got baptized by John. You show back up at work Monday morning in Jerusalem, and you're supposed to live a new type of life. He wasn't focused on social upheaval or religious withdrawal as a goal to his message. He did believe judgment was coming, but his message was go and live a righteous life. You see how different the Word of God is than these apocalyptic books, even though they can be helpful and illustrative that we talked about, or these traditions. So let's look at how, um, in verse 29... John 1, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit 
descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John's even saying, I wouldn't have known him. He didn't have like a beacon where I was just like, that's the Messiah. But the one who sent me, remember in, in Luke, the word of the Lord came to John. He, he was on a mission. He had divine revelation. It says, the one who sent me said, look for this one. When you see the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove, that's him. And John recognizes him because of that and testifies. And so verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, this may be a shortened conversation, but basically the way it reads is that John had prepared his disciples so much for the next guy that the minute he's like, hey, the next guy, they're like, see you, John. <laughs> Bye. There's another part in the Gospels where uh, people come to John, they're like, hey, Jesus is baptizing more people than you. And he's like, good. I must decrease. He must increase. Like, not a bad guy, is he? And so he's really the forerunner for this whole thing. He's the one who first starts preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Um, in fact... You don't have to turn back there. I'm just going to read it to you real quick. When Jesus begins his own uh, preaching ministry, uh, in Matthew 4, 17, after he hears that John's been arrested, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he continues John's message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand without a hitch he continues this message he's baptizing and he's bringing people into fellowship with god through this renewed community so let's talk about the kingdom this is the bottom half of your notes even though john the baptist isn't jesus his words recorded in scripture is completely authoritative prophetic word of the lord therefore what john the baptist says about the kingdom of god is true and proper since he's the first teacher about the subject matter, his teachings are important. Now, the kingdom of God is something that until that point was not... Understood. You could say understood, but what was his announcement? The kingdom of God is... At hand. At hand. At hand. At hand. It's near. Until that point, it wasn't. So it's near, it's here, it's at hand. Now the kingdom of God, according to John, was for those people who blank. Repented. Repented. You don't withdraw from society. You don't form a vicious mob. You repent. And the kingdom of God, according to John, was looking forward to a greater... What's this greater... World. <laughs> Not world. 
Remember when he says, the blank who comes after me, the one. You can say Messiah, but it's the one. It's this greater one, this greater being. He's greater than me because he was before me. That's a really roundabout way of talking about the preexistence of Christ. Even though John was older. And instead of being an escape from reality, the kingdom of God would result in a different way of life, living. I mean, isn't, isn't, when you know the background, how volatile the messianic religion was in Israel, isn't it amazing that when God sends a messenger to really talk about it, authoritatively, he's like, yeah, don't steal from people. Share and be content with what you get. It, it's, yeah. Don't go form a militia. Don't go dry yourself out in the desert. Just go be nice to people. You you repent of your evil way of living, know the Lord, and go do mercy to people. Which is a really big message in the prophets. Y'all remember that. Y'all remember us reading about Amos, where Amos is like, you know, y'all y'all sell poor people's debts, them, you know, like slavery, for a pair of shoes. Like, I want a new pair of shoes. Call some debts and get some slaves. When he was talking about how wicked Israel had become, you can only imagine the same things are going on under their Greek cultural Roman overlords. And here's John preaching the same ethical message as the prophets. But it's different this time. Someone's coming. Very quickly, I'm preparing his way. And when he gets here, I'm out of here. You know, I, I won't even take his sandals off. Or no, he, I will take his. I, I'm not worthy to take his sandals off. I guess that's the proper way to say it. That his his feet are blessed compared to me. And so that's the first step into the kingdom of God. What it is, what it's doing here. I know we don't have a lot of information yet. This is just kind of a big imprint. But what are your thoughts, questions, comments, things that you saw in, in what we talked about? He was there to prepare the way for Jesus. What did he do toward that end would be my question. I mean, he baptized people. The, was this was this message of love and taking care of other people and getting along with other people a lead into Christ? Is that what his, his purpose was? Right, and I think because you have the seamless message from John the Baptist to Christ, you can see how it starts. But another thing is, his, uh, his reach was a lot bigger than just this area. If you remember in the book of Acts, in Asia Minor, Paul finds people who are like, hey, we're John's disciples sitting up here okay. in Asia Minor 30 years later. Okay, yeah. And he's like, oh, John was preaching about this guy. Let me tell you about Jesus. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll follow him too. Okay. So I, I think it's, it's, it's bigger than we can realize, especially if you can remember last week, and we'll talk about the beginning of this class, if you were just Jewish sitting up there going, I want to follow God, who do I join? The militia group here who's like cutting Roman officials' throats at night, or these weird guys who go out in the desert. So that was our only two choices. So yeah, like, I want to follow the Lord. What do I do? Either this fight. guy or this guy? And here's John saying, no. Prepare the way of the Messiah. Join here. 
And when he gets here, you'll recognize him. Because I'll tell you who he is. But it was a preparation. John is doing nothing but preparing the way of the Lord. He's fulfilling scripture. Mm -hmm. And then the Lord continues to fulfill the scripture that was prophesied right. for hundreds of years before. And it gets so big at one point, you know, you think you think about where Herod's like, who's this guy on the desert? It's John. He hears about him, and later, after he kills John, has he come back? Like, it's a big movement that even the elites in Jerusalem, they knew something was brewing out in the desert, really popular, that people were following it, and John started that whole movement. I think it's hard for us to understand exactly what he was doing, but he is a prophet, right? The Bible calls him a prophet, right? So I think it's hard for us to understand that he's preparing the way. Because when we hear news now, we listen to Channel 6 news or social media or stuff like that, and that's how word is spread. But just like the Sadducees and Pharisees and the Essenes, all of that stuff was oral tradition and passed down and, and through word of mouth. So him starting talking and preparing the people in that region about a coming Messiah is him being Channel 6 news, going out and telling people, Jesus is coming, start looking for it, and now when they start hearing of these miracles and things that are coming, that's where you have people the feeding of 5,000, things like that, because people had been prepared and told about this is who this Jesus is, this is the coming Messiah. Even uh, Nathan refers to him as this is the Messiah, this is the one who is supposed to come that the Old Testament has prophesied about. And John is just reminding the people of his day and age, hey, it's coming, it's happening. Right. It's hard for us to understand because we don't have world tradition and stuff like that where we pass down and it's only word of mouth. And obviously from what Jesus talks about uh, when the Pharisees are present, even if they had a bunch of knowledge of Scripture, their ministry was devoid of the redemptive, Holy Spirit-working mercy of God that Jesus was full of. It was, and so if you can just imagine this, imagine hearing someone talk about the Bible for a couple of months and then you get into a solid sermon with a guy who's filled with the Holy Spirit preaching directly what you thought yesterday and you know that feeling you're just like convicted you're like okay Lord <laughs> you know where do I where, what do I do they had heard so much Bible for so long from these Pharisees and here's a guy out in the wilderness preaching the word of God and they could recognize their God's voice in him it was, it was a wake-up call. It was a religious revival for the nation. Any other questions, comments? It's a lot like... Uh, go ahead. It's a lot like the tilling the soil and like Jesus' parable with the different soils. That John is getting in there and helping people get those rocks out of the soil and right. to have it be good soil so that when that word of God comes, when... Jesus is coming that that seed is planted and takes root and grows and not just yep. falling on hardened soil or rocky and a lot of his first disciples were John's old disciples um, Andrew is one of the best was, so Peter the rock you know the, the best we'd say quote the best disciple gets signed up to Jesus because John's disciple Andrew is like hey we found them, you know, come on, come on. We found the Messiah. And there's more to the story with some fish and stuff like that too, but you get the point. You know, they're, they're connected. So it, it's interesting how that all fits. Uh,
Ken, you had what, something. What do you think prompted John to send his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the coming one, or should we look for another? He'd already baptized him. He, he knew he's the son of God, yet he questions it. Right, so there, there's a, a really good... Um, there's a really good breakdown of that, and I'll do that next week at the beginning of class because um, it gets more into the message of Jesus and how Jesus' portrayal of the kingdom. you got to remember, at this point, John the Baptist is in jail. He's not able to see things exactly, but he's trying to kind of follow the ministry of Jesus through the information he gets, and he's just kind of, I guess, some people said he's having a moment of doubt, and there are some commentaries that say, actually, you know, it's not a moment of doubt. This is more of a, have I got my interpretation right? And Jesus is interpreting for us what we should believe about John's message. Because like anything, John's message can be taken two ways. Oh, there's going to be fire. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be all this terrible stuff. You know, are we getting ready for this? Or are we getting ready for that? So let me come at the beginning of next class and spell out kind of in detail um, what that means. Um, I would do it now, but it'd take a little bit longer than we have, and it, it fits right in with Jesus and what he's doing as the Messiah um, better than more what John is doing. That's a very good question, and, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're anticipating things before I bring them out, so it's good. Anything else? All right, so if you see Wade show up next week and he's wearing like camel hair and a leather belt, y'all just y'all need to wear some steel toe boots. He's ready to preach uh, one of those barn burner messages, all right? All right, well, thank y'all for being here. Y'all have a great week.